how many of you have uh, a drawer or maybe like a file folder in your home where you store all the instruction manuals for your electronics and appliances? Do you have something like that, most of you? Okay, yeah. You know, as helpful as instruction manuals can be, there's, there's really, though, there's only two types of people who read instruction manuals. Uh, engineers and engineers. <laughs> and no offense to our engineer friends. But, uh, well, when my wife was pregnant with Kate, a, f- a friend kindly gave us a new crib. And since I'm no engineer, I went ahead and bypassed the instructions and started putting the crib together myself. And you know what? It wasn't so hard. In fact, not only did it take me just a couple of hours to assemble the crib, I also then proudly showed my wife. I said, wife, Stephanie. My name's not wife, her name's Stephanie. I said, Stephanie, I not only assembled this, in two hours, but I'm so good, Stephanie, I made it, and I have leftover parts. <laughs> now, as your, your laugh reveals, you know that cribs don't come with leftover parts. So you know what happened? I'll tell you what happened. Because I willfully chose to brush the instructions off to the side, I assembled the crib as such to where the side rail couldn't go up and down, which meant, if our our poor daughter was sleep-deprived early on in her life, which meant we couldn't lower to then gently lay Kate down to go to bed at night. We had to kind of lift her over and kind of like drop her, okay? (laughs) All this to say, we had a really hard time trying to lay our, our sweet baby daughter down to sleep because we had to lift her up and over the rail, right? We didn't experience the full benefit of the crib because I ignored the instruction manual. Have any of you ever had a similar experience and are willing to admit it? (laughs) Uh, This morning, we're going to look at God's instructions for fathers in Ephesians 6.4. And for many of you, this is a familiar passage. In fact, it is so familiar, you might be tempted to approach it the way I approached those crib instructions. Just kind of brush it aside and not give too much thought to it. However, I would caution you this morning against doing that. To all the men here, please hear me. As we study our text this morning, please do not be like me and that crib, thinking you can figure it out on your own. Rather, I would invite you to approach this text, familiar as it is, to approach this text with humility. Because, you know, it's one thing to incorrectly assemble a crib. I mean, a rail that doesn't slide up and down, it's not that big of a deal. But to incorrectly parent a child, 
How much greater and far-reaching are those consequences? Indeed, I would suggest that fewer things are more needed today than God-honoring, biblically-driven parenting. So though this text is directed towards fathers, I would encourage everyone here to lean in, to lean in and give your full attention to this passage. To the young men here, learn now, now, what it means to be a father and what God requires of you. To the women here, I would encourage you and invite you to absorb the truth of this text so you could accurately pray for those men in your life who are fathers or who aspire to be fathers. And indeed, to the children here, my own included, I would encourage you to take note so you can pray for your father and love your dad by praying for him in this way. So what good instructions does God have for fathers? Well, turn with me, if you haven't already, to Ephesians 6. That's page 970, That's page 979, that paperback Bible in the seat in front of you. And I'd invite you to follow along as I read verses 1 through 4. We looked at verses 1 through 3 last week, but to kind of get the flow of what Paul's saying, we're going to back things up. And Paul writes this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. And then here's where we're going to camp out this morning. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Amen and amen. This is God's good, good word. Uh, several years ago, my wife and I made a radical decision. We decided together that my wife Stephanie should stop doing something. And you know what that was? We agreed together that she should stop reading the Bible to our children. Yes, you heard that correctly. We decided that for a season, she would stop reading the Bible to our kids. No reading the Bible at the breakfast table or during the day or at night before the kids go to bed. She was to no longer read the Bible to our own children full stop. Keep in mind, I'm a pastor. Keep in mind, we want our children to know and to love and to serve the Lord. So why did we together, 
decide that for a season she would not read the Bible to our children. Well, we did so because of the truth that Paul articulates in the text I just read. And that is simply this. God holds fathers responsible for their children. God holds fathers responsible for their children, especially the spiritual well-being of their kids. Please notice Paul's choice of words in this section. They're not insignificant. Look carefully to what he writes in these four verses. Notice he speaks of parents in verse 1, then fathers and mothers in verse 2, and then we would expect him to say fathers and mothers again in verse 4, but does he? No, he says fathers. Could have said parents, and he could have said fathers and mothers. But he doesn't. No, he's speaking directly to fathers. And as verse 4 makes clear, it is fathers whom God holds responsible for their children, especially their spiritual well-being. Indeed, I, I would like you guys, those of you who have been with us for a while in Ephesians, I'd like you just to consider for a moment the weighty responsibility God places upon married men with children. Husbands are not only responsible for the spiritual well-being of their wives, as chapter 5, verse 22 through 23 makes abundantly clear. But those whom God has also blessed with children, God also commands fathers to bring up their children in the instruction of the Lord. As pastor and author H.B. Charles has written, he says, God has given husbands and fathers the special role of the head of the home. On one hand, that means the fathers have been given divine authority over what happens in the home. He is in charge of the household. He leads the family. He governs his wife and children. On the other hand, the fact that fathers have been given divine authority over the home means that he is under divine accountability for what happens in the home. You see, by Stephanie not reading the Bible to our kids, the responsibility to disciple my children in the Lord rested on my shoulders where it belongs, not hers. Furthermore, the reason why we chose to do this for a little bit of time is because it reinforced to our children that dad has been tasked by God to be the spiritual leader of our home. Now, I'm going to now say all the qualifying and nuanced things that you want me to say here. Okay? Please hear me. Is there anything wrong with the mother reading the Bible to her children? What's the answer? No, of course not. And as I stated, we simply did that just for a season. Today, my wife Stephanie reads to our children, and I would encourage all mothers 
to read the Bible to their children. Yet, Christian father, it must not be done because you are abdicating your God-given responsibility. Christian father, please hear me. Do not place upon your wife the responsibility God has given you to be the spiritual leader and for the spiritual well-being of your children. That is not hers to bear. God has given it to you. Please hear me. Her involvement should be supplementary to your already active role. And there's an application here for mothers, isn't there? Christian mothers, please hear me and rejoice. You are not called by God to lead your home spiritually. God does not hold you responsible for that. That belongs to your husband. Now, to be sure, both the Old and New Testament speak of a mother's important role in caring for and nurturing her children spiritually. I am no way in trying to minimize that a, or say that a mother should not have an active role in pointing her kids to Jesus. Yes, she should. I mean, think of Eunice and Lois, the mother and grandmother of Timothy, who Paul commends in 2 Timothy 1.5, right? These women influenced and shaped the faith of Timothy. But indeed, sometimes due either to death or divorce, there may not be a Christian father in the home. In which case, a Christian mom needs to faithfully point her kids to Jesus. Yet to the married Christian mother, God has assigned your husband as the head of the home. He's in charge of the spiritual well-being of your family. And I just want to lovingly ask, and just pause for a moment, are you assuming, Christian mom, a burden or responsibility that God has not given you? Or, or maybe in, in, a, in a more direct way, are you seeking to be the head of your home? The late pastor and author John Blanchard said it well. He said, A home with no head is a disaster. One with two heads is a monstrosity. <laughs> God holds fathers responsible for their children. So what does that look like? Well, I'd like you to observe that Paul gives two clear instructions for Christian fathers, and this is the rest of the outline this morning. Notice first that Christian fathers are commanded not to provoke their children to anger. This is what I love about Paul. He says, this is what you're not to do, and he says this is what you are to do. And the first thing he says for a Christian father, do not provoke your children to anger. Look at, at verse 4 again, the first half. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Uh, in his most recent special, comedian Nick Bargatsky 
talks about what it was like to be raised by Christian parents in the 80s. And he has lots of funny things he says. But overall he says it was good, but it was strict. He says there are, there are lots of things that he couldn't do. In contrast, Nick says, he says that he has a sister who is 10 years younger than him who apparently was raised by her best friends. <laughs> he observed that his sister has no fear of her, her, their parents and that his parents let her do whatever she wants to. In fact, those of you that have seen the special know this story. When his younger sister turned 18, she got a tattoo. And when she told her brother Nick, he's like, well, you're going to get in pretty big trouble when mom and dad find out that you got a tattoo, only to discover that they got a tattoo with her. <laughs> Nick, said that, Nick said that he felt like he had to take them together, sit them down, and say, you know what? I don't think you guys should be hanging out together. <laughs> you're, you're a bad influence on one another, right? Now, those of you who have, have seen the special, you know that when Nick told the story, everyone laughed, kind of like you did here this morning. But, but you know why so many people laughed? It's because Nick's experience isn't unique, is it? Especially those of you who have come from a larger family. There are many families whose parents were much more lax in how they raised their youngest compared to their eldest, right? Now listen, I am really glad Nick can laugh about it because many cannot. Indeed, being inconsistent with, with discipline or having different parental standards often causes great harm in the hearts of children. Notice Paul begins by instructing fathers on what they should not do. Fathers are commanded not to provoke their children to anger. That verb provoke, it means to arouse to wrath or to exasperate. Now this does not mean, Christian father, or parent for that matter, this does not mean you are never to oppose, upset, challenge or deny your children. No, you, you must mitigate your children's sin. And often, they will not be happy about it. But please hear me. Paul is not saying that you should never make your children angry. No, what he is saying is that you should never make your children angry intentionally, unnecessarily, or arbitrarily. You see, anger devours almost all other good emotions. Have you noticed this? Anger deadens the soul. It numbs the heart to joy and gratitude and hope and tenderness and compassion and kindness. So Paul knows that if a dad can help a child not be overcome by anger, he may unlock his heart to a dozen other precious emotions 
that make worship possible and make relationships sweet. In their, their helpful book, The Faithful Parent, authors and counselors Martha Peace and Stuart Scott, they list some biblical examples of how a father can provoke his children to anger. And I want to read several to you that I think are very helpful. And as you're as I'm sharing these things, I'd invite you to do some self-reflection and to see if you find yourself in any of these. For example, one way that can provoke a child to anger or become discouraged, as Paul says in Colossians 3.21, is uh, by a lack of marital harmony. Uh, another way of, of, to provoke a child to anger is by establishing and maintaining a child-centered home instead of a God-centered home. Well, uh, what is it the, the Duke of Windsor one time said? The thing that he's most impressed about Americans is the way that parents obey their children. Right? That's the symptom of a child-centered home. Or another way you can provoke your children to anger is by modeling sinful anger. Or like with Nick's parents, being inconsistent with discipline or having different parental standards can cause discouragement or provoke a child to anger. Or what about being harder on the sins and mistakes of your kids than on your own. Indeed, I would suggest one of the chief ways, fathers, that we can provoke our kids to anger is by failing to admit when we have sinned or wronged somebody and failing then to ask for forgiveness. You, you want to crush the soul of your child to do that. Or how about constantly finding fault without ever giving praise? Furthermore, failing to distinguish between the law of God and the law of the house is another surefire way to provoke your kids to anger. Or, I mean, or, or consider what we learned in our study of First and Second Samuel with David. Being neglectful was one of King David's greatest sins, which drove Absalom to rebellion and to treason and all sorts of problems in the kingdom, all because David was passive and negligent. And then, of course, using abusive words, expressions, and tone of voice are ways that we can provoke our kids. Actually, when you think about it, <laughs> it's quite frightening, isn't it? All the ways we can provoke our children to anger. Yeah, this is what I want you to think about in light of this. Christian, think about this. God has never done anything that should legitimately cause anger in any of his children. Have you thought of that? 
God has never, never provokes His own kids to anger. Now it does happen, we get angry. And when it does, we should admit it, repent and turn back to humble trust in God's sovereign goodness. But even though God has never done anything that legitimately provokes our anger at Him, what has He done about the breakdown in our relationship with Him? He has taken the initiative to heal it. And His initiatives to heal our broken relationship came at an infinite cost to Him. So, don't provoke them to anger. So how can we not do that? Right? We know here are some things that we can do, so how can we not provoke them to anger? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that the answer lies in the second half of verse 4. You see, Father, if you fail to do the second part of verse 4, you will provoke your children to anger. But we could say it positively like this. You will not provoke your children to anger if you do what is required of you in verse 4, the end of verse 4. So notice second then, fathers are to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Look again at this second half of that verse. He says, so don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This past January, I took my sons and my dad and their, their cousin Nolan, I took them to Knott's Berry Farm in Southern California for our youngest, Noah, for his 10th birthday. For those of you who don't know, Knott's Berry Farm, it's a, it's a theme park. It's like the poor man's Disneyland, okay? And, and one, of the, one of the rides we went on there in Knott's Berry Farm was a, a ride called Berry Tales. And on this ride, they give you a little gun where you shoot at certain targets. And at the end of the ride, you get to see who got the most points. Here's a, here's a picture of me with my dad and Noah about ready to go on the ride, okay? Now, the ride is visually overstimulating. And it's really hard with all these images and these screens, it's really hard to figure out what to do. In fact, after the ride, I asked my dad, I said, so what was your approach to the game? And you know what he said? He said, I really wasn't aiming at anything. I just pulled the trigger as much as possible and hope I hit a target. <laughs> Guess who got the most points? My dad. My dad. Now, while that might be a good approach to the ride, Berry Tales, it isn't for parenting. Yet, sadly, I would submit to you that this approach can be the approach for many Christian parents. What I mean is, they don't have a clear goal, and they don't have a clear target they're aiming for in the raising of their children. They're just shooting in all sorts of directions, hoping something's going to land, hoping everything's going to turn out okay. Or worse still... Many times, parenting goals 
are often no more noble than immediate comfort and convenience. Faith, I want to suggest to you that Paul succinctly articulates the goal for Christian parenting in the second half of that, this verse. And that is this, that your children be conformed into the image of Christ and thereby increase their capacity to enjoy Christ. This is the target. This is what Paul is getting at when he instructs fathers to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Please hear me. The Lord is both the goal and the content of our parenting. So if you're the note-taking type, we could say it like this. The goal of parenting is to have a child pleased with Jesus and to have a child pleasing to Jesus. Fathers, please hear me. Your ultimate goal as a father is not to raise your son or daughter to be a professional athlete or a successful business person or a well-read academic or even a productive citizen of this country as noble as all those things are. Please hear me. That's not the target. No, the goal, the target, is to conform your child into the image of Christ so they can increase their capacity to enjoy Christ forever. And here's my question, dads. What would change in your family life if you embraced this goal? How many families spend so much time sports, trying to get into colleges, trying to get scholarships. Again, all wonderful things, but they are subservient. They're secondary to the goal of having a child pleased with Jesus and who is pleasing to Jesus. I mean, fathers, how would you spend your time differently? How would conversations be different at the kitchen table? How would you be more intentional? Fathers, notice, for this to take place, you must be active. You can't be passive here. And I want to just draw your attention to a couple of phrases there at the second half of verse 4. Notice that phrase, bring them up. Fathers, to bring them up. As several commentators have pointed out, Listen to this. The words bring them up means to nourish or feed. As in chapter 5, verse 29, which says that a man nourishes and cherishes his own body and his wife. Uh, I mean, John Calvin. Uh, Lord, we thank you for him. He, he translates this phrase bring them up with these words, quote, let them be kindly cherished. And then goes on to emphasize that the over-idea is gentleness in your interactions with your children. So listen, whatever else we might say about a father's responsibility, based on the grammar and language of this text, fathers, hear me, it must be done in gentleness. 
Children cannot bring themselves up properly. They need you. And here's the second thing I want to point out. They need two important things from you, Father. They need discipline and they need instruction. First, they need you to discipline them in the Lord. And I'm going to say something that I hope isn't a shock to most parents, but it can be often ignored, and that is this. Selfishness is not outgrown. Rebellion against authority is not outgrown. These are not stages. No, these are sin patterns that need to be corrected in your child's heart and life. And God says, dads, mothers too, but he gives the primary responsibility, dads, discipline them in the Lord. Parents should seek a submissive, obedient attitude in their children, like we discussed last week. You know what happens to a selfish child who is never corrected and taught to turn from that sin and turn to Christ? You know what happens? They become a selfish adult who expresses his or her selfishness in more sophisticated ways. Children need the loving, restorative discipline of their father. I love what Ted Tripp has written on this matter, and I would encourage his book to you, Shepherding a Child's Heart. But he writes this, If correction orbits around the parent who has been offended, then the focus will be venting anger or perhaps taking vengeance. The function is punitive. If, however, correction orbits around God as the one offended, then the focus is restoration. The function is remedial. It is designed to move a child who has disobeyed God back to the path of obedience. It's corrective. I see, fathers, and this is so convicting. The aim of our disciplining and correcting our children, the goal cannot be immediate relief from the pain and difficulty they're bringing upon you and the family. That's hard to say and even harder to live up. But we have to set our eyes on something higher than that. It requires time. No, our goal needs to be a future glad submission to God in the heart of the child we're disciplining. And so can I suggest how to discipline your child in this way? Here's some thoughts to consider as you think about your own children and how you can discipline them when is, when is needed. I would suggest a couple of things based on this text and other biblical passages. Fathers, guys, before we discipline our children, first, we need to have our hearts right and have the right goal in mind. And when we do that, that will calm us down from whatever the situation might be and, and enable us to properly love and care for our child like we should. So we need to say, okay, I'm doing this for God's glory and for their good. 
But first, when you, when you, before the discipline is administered, the child needs to know, and, and we need to make sure that they know that what they did was wrong. We want our children to own and confess their sin, not justify their actions or make excuses. Indeed, we also want to draw them out and ask, tell me, what were you wanting in that moment? What were you desiring in that moment when you said what you said or you did what you did or you disobeyed how you disobeyed? What are the heart issues that are going on in your child? And we also want them to see that they have not simply disobeyed us, but they've sinned against God in doing so. And this is why they need Jesus. Men, Christian fathers, please hear me. God gives you a real special opportunity every time you discipline your kids. You know why? Because moments of discipline are gospel moments. They are times when our children can most clearly see that they need the rescuing grace of Jesus. I, I will frequently tell my kids in the moments when I've had to discipline them, they need Jesus. And I say, you know what? And dad needs Jesus too. And then we look to him. Then after the discipline is administered, whether it be corporal punishment or some other form of discipline, we must reassure our children of our love and care for them. For indeed, that's why we're disciplining them in the first place. We do so out of a love and obedience to God, and then for their good. Amen? And so just two application questions. Fathers, are you disciplining your kids? And are you doing so in love? But then second, I'll go back to the main outline here. So to bring them up means that you discipline them and also you instruct your kids. Fathers, whether you acknowledge it or not, you're a teacher. You are a teacher. You've been called by God to instruct your kids in the Lord. As, as the smart guys will tell us, the Greek word that is used here for instruct, it means to place before the mind. So the idea is to instruct, I'm putting something before my children's minds. Something to, to bring about change. And, and what do we want to place before our, kill, our children's minds? Paul doesn't have, let us guess. It's the Lord. We want to set before them the Lord. And not only the Lord, but then attitudes and actions that God would have them change in their lives. We want to set before them thinking patterns that God would have them change in their lives. And fathers, this requires work. This requires sacrifice. This requires time. Yet you can do so, Christian father, because of what God in Christ has done for you. Now, I want to close with this. Christian Father, though you have failed, as I have failed many times in the way that I have parented and disciplined my children, though you have failed many times, though you have sinned and given way to anger, your Heavenly Father forgives you in Christ and has forgiven you in Christ.
Consider this. Your failings as a father deserve God's wrath. Yet through the work of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father has overcome His wrath for you. His wrath has been satisfied. He's forgiven you of your sin. And in Him, Christian Father, if you will have it, there is a healing for decades of soul-destroying anger. What our children need from us is that we experience the fullness of God's grace and healing and forgiveness. Christian Father, because God has forgiven you, as you rejoice and reflect and drink deeply from that truth, you now can forgive your wife and to forgive your children. And in so doing, as you forgive, sever the root of anger. So as God in His kindness allows you to overcome the anger in your life, you can then not provoke your own children to anger. Let us be men who show our children how a soul can replace anger with tender-hearted joy. Amen? Let's pray.